Yeah, you do not have to be seated. I said you may be seated. But you may regret not sitting down. Because I'm going to talk for a few minutes. But there will be more music later. Thank you, band. And so if you were not here last week, you missed the very first week. Uh, uh, yes, children's grades K through 3 are invited to be dismissed. I will remember sometime before Drew is back from sabbatical. I remembered last week. That's true. I got a one and two record, which is usually something I would say of the Bengals this time of year. But, uh, oh, I said usually, I don't know what they have. They're two and one, three and one. <laughs> that question's usually answered in January. Um <laughs> Anyway, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to page 800, and it's going to be on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you, but we started a sermon series last week on the parables of Jesus, and the shortest possible definition of a parable is a story, stories with intent, which is the name of our series, and so last week we covered uh, the purpose of the parables, we learned a little bit about how to interpret parables, and we're going to... The great thing about studying the parables is since they're all a little different, they all employ a little different technique. So every time you learn one, you learn the point of the parable, but you also learn something about how to read other parables. And so this week, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'm going to read it to you, then we'll pray, and then we will discuss, uh, starting in verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one, uh, one was brought to him who owned, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your written word. We pray now that uh, your Holy Spirit would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what you are saying to us this morning and that you would uh, further just take this word and you would seal it into our hearts and apply it to our lives. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so, if you are here last week, I pointed out to you that many of our stained glass windows depict uh, stories from different parables. And so if you look around at the stained glass windows this week, 
you'll notice that there is not a stained glass window of one man strangling another man. Because that's what the stained glass window would be if we were to depict this. In fact, I googled it and there's not any church anywhere that has made a stained glass window of one man strangling another one demanding money. I don't know why. But that's low-hanging fruit if somebody wants to make one. So... Uh, it's, and so when we get into this parable, the, the theme of this parable is grace and responsibility. Grace and then the responsibility that comes from that grace. And we're going to go through it here, but before we do, I'm just going to set the stage for you a little bit by telling you what all is in Matthew 18. If you don't believe me, there's Bibles in the pews. You can look it up afterwards, um, or you can uh, challenge me in the atrium afterwards. Um, so in chapter 18... Verses 1 through 5 is a focus on humility. Answers the question, who is the greatest? And uh, if you've read that before, or I encourage you to read it later, um, the answer is whoever humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom. So 1 through 5, you focus on humility. Then 6 through 9, you focus on temptations to sin. That seems like an abrupt turn. And then in 10 through 14, you go on the parable of the lost sheep which is demonstrating the value of those outside the fold. So it's the value of others. So you go focus on humility, which is putting others as greater than yourself. Focus on the temptation to sin, then the focus on the value of others. And then in 15 through 20, it's dealing with sin and community. If your brother sins against you, that passage. Uh, so then you go back to sin. So it's focus on humility, focus on sin, focus on humility, focus on sin, and then the parable of the unforgiving servant. So there's a pattern emerging. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But we are going to talk about that. And so the context of this theme, though, is that there is a connection between personal sin, personal holiness, and the way that we treat others. In fact, you can't think about your personal sin or your personal holiness, whether you can state it positively or negatively, you can't think of yourself as holy without thinking about how you treat other people. And you can't think of yourself as sinful without thinking about how you treat other people. And so that's the connection that we see emerging. And so the best way to talk about this parable is the way it presents itself is like a three-act play. And so, by the way, who is the, would you say, is the main character of this parable? Anyone? It's it's in the name. It's the unforgiving servant. I see a hand. We're not going to... I trust you have the right answer. Um, but it's this unforgiving servant. And the way you know that is that there's three acts, and he's the only character that's in all three acts. Now, it doesn't mean we're supposed to emulate him. In fact, a lot of times parables teach by contrast. But the first act begins in verse 23 and goes to, through 27. And... This king decides to settle his debts and brings before him people who owe him money. And this man is brought before the king because he owes 10,000 talents. And I know you're thinking, wow, that is a lot of talents. And if I knew what a talent was, I'd be really impressed. But don't worry. Ancient Near Eastern currency is one of the things you're going to learn this morning. Um, 10,000 talents. So one talent is the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. And I know you're like, oh, good. (laughs) You know, it's like, I know it's probably in the back of your notebook, uh, but uh, the little conversion scale. But one denarii is one day's labor. 
So if you go work a full eight-hour day, you get a denarii, and um, 6,000 denarii is one talent. So one talent equals 16 years worth of wages. When you owe 10,000 talents, you owe 160,000 years worth of debt if you work every single day. Now, I, this is just for fun. I did the, uh, the, I looked at the life expectancy of someone in the ancient Near East in the first century. And the life expectancy, you could live longer, but on average was 48 years. So, for anyone dividing 160,000 years by 48, this is literally 3,333 lifetimes in the first century. Now look at what the servant says to the master in verse 26. The servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now I know we're not all accountants, but could he repay everything? Could, could he repay everything if he wanted to? If he worked really, really hard, put in overtime, no. Not unless he has 3,332 more lives than what he's currently living. Would he even come closer to paying this? But this is his desperate plea. And the master hears this plea and has pity on him. And he forgives him all of it. 10,000 talents. 160,000 years worth of daily labor. Gone. Erased. Now that should make... If that was the end of the parable, it'd be a really happy servant, right? It's just a parable about grace. But the parable keeps going. That's Act 1. Act 2. Beginning in verse 28, the servant goes out and finds his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. How much is the denarii? A day's labor. 100 days labor. About three months. He was just forgiven 3,333 lifetimes of debt. And someone owes him three months worth of debt. And how does he respond? He chokes him and demands his money from his fellow servant immediately. His fellow servant offers a plea, which, by the way, is word for word the same words that he said to the master in the first act. But the result is different. He throws his fellow servant in jail until he's able to pay it off. Which, by the way, um, you do not make a denarii a day in jail. So if you throw someone in jail until they pay off the debt, they're not going to be paying the debt off anytime soon. And so that's the second act. And then you're like, okay, maybe we're not able to relate as much with this main character as we initially hoped. Um, but then we get to the third act. And so I've, I actually titled these acts, and I forgot to use the titles. Act one, the servant is forgiven. Act two, the servant is unforgiving. And act three, the servant is unforgiven. And so the master hears about this from the other servants who are terrified of their friend now. And he condemns him for not showing mercy and sends the first servant to jail until all his debt is paid. And then Jesus ends the parable and summarizes it and says it this way. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is not the most cheerful parable that we've ever heard. But the first thing we should note, and I'm going to pull out a couple themes here, and I hope you can see where they're coming from now. We've kind of gone through the passage, but the first one 
is to point now is kind of sneaky. I should have read these two verses before this, but I did it this way on purpose. The very fir- the two verses that lead into this go like this. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells him this parable. <laughs> what Jesus is saying to Peter here is like, when you ask me that question, let me tell you what you sound like. You sound like that first servant saying, how much debt do I have to forgive? To the, you know, when he goes off to his second servant. It's like, you were just forgiven 300, or 3,333 lifetimes worth of debt, and you want to know how many months of debt you're supposed to forgive someone else? Let me tell you a story, and, uh, hope it sinks in. And so, the answer here, which Jesus gets to, is that you must forgive another, your, your brother or sister from your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine a way in which you can be forgiving another person from your heart while also keeping a strict ledger of how many times you've had to forgive them. If you've got a, uh, you know, a knife and you're carving it onto your breakfast table each morning, you're like 17 times I've forgiven that guy, 60 more and he's done. And that does not sound like the attitude of someone forgiving someone else from their heart, Right? And the point is, and you can, there's a debate on the translation whether that's 77 or 70 times 7, which would be a much larger number. But the point is, it's so many that you're not supposed to be counting how much you're forgiving another person. And there's a good reason for that because it, it shows, well, we'll get to that in a bit, but it shows how much you think you've been forgiven is, uh, the measure here. But secondly, there's a teachable moment here, like I said, that will help us inform us for all future parables. And that is this. Remember last week I talked about how many times we've heard bad interpretations of parables from trying to get too much out of the parable, trying to spread it too thin, trying to apply it in ways that it wasn't meant to be applied. And that is this. The parables, and especially this parable, exist to make a single point. And so we cannot and we should not try to translate every tiny feature and interpret every little aspect of this and port it over to some, you know, you can't create a whole theology of uh, the New Testament just out of each parable. And for example here, now in this parable, which person would you say represents the king? Or which person would you say represents God, if anyone? Probably the king, right? So this parable provides an analogy for God, but it doesn't provide a picture for God. So it's not saying... And, and, and this is what a lot of people are tempted to do. They'll say, okay, I'm going to go uh, into a resource library and I'm going to go find out everything I can about first century Jewish kings and, and the way they dealt with debt and servants and jail time. And everything I learned from that, I can now apply to God the Father because I know that from this parable, God is like an ancient first century Jewish king. You can't do that because that's not what the parable is trying to do. The parable is not saying he's like this man in every single way. He's just saying... In this way, in this aspect of forgiveness, which is what we're focusing on here, the kingdom is like this. And so, and that's why he gives us a wide variety of parables because he's highlighting a different aspect of it each time, but we can't necessarily pull everything we would ever want to know out of every single parable. And so we'll get to the point here, but the point today is that grace 
comes with responsibility, which might sound like a weird saying. And I've got a few quotes here, and uh, I'm, they're all from the guy who wrote the book, Stories with Intent, which is uh, a reference last week, uh, and it had a surprising number of people at first service tell me they were trying to buy it or get it from the library. I will remind you, it's a thousand-page book just on the parables. It's wonderful, but you're going to have some library fees if you uh, check that out. Anyway, I'm glad people are interested in it. Uh, so anyway, I've got four quotes from him here. Uh, just know that if you hear something that um, sounds really well-informed and educated, then I'm quoting someone here. Um, but the, the point here is that grace comes with responsibility, and he says it this way. He says, the kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world, but it also comes with limitless demand. It's limitless grace. God gives so freely, but God can also demand from us whatever he wants. And he says this way as well, that Christian living, rather than insisting on rights, should be a continual dispensing of mercy and forgiveness. So instead of us constantly in all our relationships insisting on what we're owed, what another person owes us, how they've wronged us, uh, how much money they owe us, we ought to be continually, habitually, part of our lifestyle, should just be like breathing, should be dispensing mercy and forgiveness. And why? Because that's how God is. We get that from God. We don't uh, come up with that on our own. So grace comes with responsibility, but, and, well, this is building on that, grace is cheapened if we don't pair it with responsibility. And so he says it this way, the church has often presented grace that did not have to be taken seriously. But biblical grace is transforming grace. Now, how many of you, if I were to say the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that would sound familiar? Enough people that I trust, those of you raising your hand either don't feel like raising your hands or are capable of using Google if you're interested. But he's he's written a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and in it, he describes cheap grace. Grace that is just... The church talks about grace, they give it out freely, and there's no uh, expectation Jesus doesn't want or demand anything of you or from you. You just give it out again and again and again. And ultimately, he says, that doesn't change people's lives, and that doesn't really reflect the gospel. And you're not really offering people Jesus if you offer grace like that. And so grace has this responsibility paired with it, but, and this is the important part, and this is what sets the gospel apart, grace precedes the responsibility given. So grace is given to you before any responsibility is expected of you. So when you are carrying out responsibilities given to you by Jesus, things that are asked of you from God, things we carry out, they are not given for you to earn your salvation. That's already been given. These are your response to it. This is how we respond to the grace that's been given and you may say, well, that doesn't really sound like the grace that I've been expecting, uh, you know, from maybe you've heard it differently somewhere else. But this is what Jesus is saying is, you are the first servant here. You have been brought before God before all because of all your debts, 3,333 3, lifetimes worth of debt, and it's wiped clean. And if you go forth in the second act and are ungracious and unforgiving with other people, you have to wonder what's wrong with that servant, right? 
And, and notice in the first act that the king didn't say, now you better go be forgiving. He just thought, of course you would go be forgiving. Why wouldn't you be forgiving? If you really understand what just happened here, how could you go forth not being different? But that is how many of us leave church every single week. And so, and this is the best quote from, this is my last quote from him, and this is the best one. He says, the intent of this parable is that God's prior action of mercy and forgiveness is to be extended to other people. The ethic is responsive and reflective. End quote. Now, what does that mean? It means the ethic, the expectation, the the guideline given to us here is that it is to be responsive. It's done in response to we're not being forgiving to others and then hoping God will forgive us because we've been forgiving enough. No, you've already been forgiven. And in response to that, you're being forgiven to others. And it's reflective. Every ethic we get, every command we get from the Bible, from the New Testament or the Old Testament is a reflection of God's character. It shows us what God is like, who God is like, and when we live it out and we take it out of the church with us, which is where it goes, the world gets to see what God's character is like. We reflect God's character. Now, obviously, we don't do it perfectly, which is why we come in here and ask for forgiveness every single Sunday, and uh, we really still do it every day. But here's the question for us today, is are you, and not not you in the sense of, you, can you think of someone that you can really stick this message to? It's, no, you, you, you. <laughs> Are you able to be forgiving from your heart? And here's how you do it. This is the secret. The only way to be forgiving, as we ought to be, is to realize how much that we have been forgiven. Now, sadly, many of us do not realize uh, the depth and weight of our own sin. In 2017, just last year, uh, a group called Lifeway Research, you know, Lifeway bookstores, they have a big corporate office, they do all kinds of things. They do a research, and they conducted a study on Americans last year, uh, not American Christians, just all Americans. And you had to say, which one of these statements you most agreed with about sin? 34% said of Americans said, I am a sinner, and I work on being less of one. Okay. 28% said, I am a sinner and I depend on Jesus Christ to overcome sin. 10% said, sin does not exist. There's no such thing. I can't be a sinner because there is no such thing as sin. 8% said, it does exist, but I'm not a sinner. There's 18% there. 5% said, I'm a sinner and I'm fine with that. Doesn't bother me. 15%, 15%, and I think we can probably guess where they go, prefer not to say. <laughs> now, I can't imagine a scenario in which I don't believe sin exists, but I prefer not to say. Or I don't think I'm a sinner, but I prefer not to say. I'm going to just round up and say that those people are probably aware of their own sin in some level, if they're not willing to say uh, what their stance on sin is. But here's the thing, is if you're not confronted with your sin on a regular basis it's easy to forget how much you've been forgiven. And forgiveness, which I, I've i heard a lot of sermons on forgiveness, and a lot of them commend forgiveness for a variety of reasons. In fact, I even found myself starting to do that. I found an um, article from 2015 in Psychology Today magazine, 
which is a magazine I found out. I learned two things. That exists, and it had an article. Um, but they offered six reasons that it is beneficial to engage in forgiveness. And a lot of them are, you know, it's therapeutic, it's good for your well-being. I could read that list to you. I could give them their good reasons uh, of good benefits from forgiveness, but none of them are the reason that God gives us to forgive people. He doesn't say, do it because it's good for your well-being, do it because it's good for your health. It's great that those are side effects. Uh, and it's probably... Uh, shows the goodness of God's law and God's commands to us. But the reason is this. You have been forgiven more than you can comprehend by a God who loves more than you can fathom. That's the reason you're supposed to be forgiving. You have been forgiven more than you can comprehend by a God who loves you more than you can fathom. Now, I spent the first... Eight to ten years of my time in ministry working in youth ministry. And in that time, I saw a lot of people come to Christ for the first time and a lot of people, you know, continue in that and grow. And I've had this conversation with a lot of people. I know it's true of myself, but a lot of them say, you know, when I first came to Jesus, I learned that, you know, God is holy. He's perfect. He's up here and I'm down here and I need help to get here. Let you see my hands over there. So they're, you know, we're that far apart. And as they stayed in the church, they learned what God wants them to do. They actually behaved more in a holier way. They started doing the things God would have them do. And so you would think that would get closer. But what they said is, actually, I realized that gap is even further than I realized it was. Because as we grow in our holiness, as we grow in learning to do the right thing, we actually see how far from it we are. You, when you become more aware of what holiness actually is and the holiness that God actually has, you realize how far away. So even though hopefully we're all continuing, we're all improving, we're all getting better, we just realize that we're further and further from where God wants us to be. So when I first became a Christian, I thought I, you know, I needed like, I don't know, a, you know, maybe a, like a hundred denarii loan uh, from God. And now I realize it's more in the 10,000 talent range. Um, and so it's only that growing as a Christian means that you're realizing the depth of your sin, which means you're continuously growing in gratitude. And that is the only way that you can become a forgiving person is when you reflect on who God is and you come into worship and you experience God's goodness. We sing about his goodness every single week. He is good. He is holy. He is perfect. And we look at our own lives as we do every week in our worship service and we confess our sins before God. We realize how far from that standard we are. And so we continuously grow in gratitude and then we get to go reflect God's character out into a broken and hurting world. So all of Christian living is a reaction to the grace that God showed us from the beginning. And all of our Christian ethics come from who God is And what he has shown himself to be like. And so, to answer Peter's original question, how many times must we forgive one who sins against us? Jesus kind of answers by saying, how many times has God forgiven you of your sin? And do you really want him to put a number on it? (laughs) Do you want a number that you can check off 
Because do you want God to be keeping a number? Do you want him to keep a ledger? Do you want him keeping score of how many times you have needed forgiveness? Therefore, if God is like that and he's holier than you, then you who are not holy should be much more willing to forgive others, especially when their slights pale in comparison 